Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ranching Reboot, episode 43. Today we're actually doing it at the Eastus Media Studio in Pratt, Kansas, and I'm sitting across the table from my good friend, Sage Askin, who's made the trip all the way down from Lusk, Wyoming, to hang out in the Red Hills today. So, Sage, it's good to see you. How are you, bud? Uh, I'm pretty well, Brian. Yeah, it's a little windy down here, but I think I texted you on the way down and said it's a lot warmer than it would have been back home. I think you're, you're 20 degrees warmer here, so <laughs> and the wind's equal. <laughs> You know, I, I haven't spent a whole lot of time in my life in Wyoming. I've passed through a couple times, and oh, just a couple weeks ago when we were in Cheyenne for ranching for profit, that, I think that was like the first, no, that wasn't the first time I've spent a night in Wyoming. It's the first night I'd spent a, hotel, a night in a hotel in Wyoming. Um, so, I, I, you know, I'm not terribly familiar with Wyoming, and, and you're from Lusk, so where is Lusk in Wyoming? Sure. Lusk is extreme east-central Wyoming, right over against the Nebraska panhandle. And I'm actually originally from Douglas, which is a little bit west of there. Um, <clears throat> it's east of the Continental Divide. And Wyoming's a very diverse state. We're kind of known as a headwaters state, Brian. Um, there's five major river drainages that all start in Wyoming. A very high, second highest state in the nation. So, uh, like, our land is very diverse. There is every different eco region that can occur at that elevation occurs in Wyoming. Yep, it's kind of wild. So Lusk, we ranch at Lusk, Wyoming. Um, we live south of there. Um, and it's just uh, rolling, you know, grasslands. Uh, we're still arid. There are no real mollusols in the entire state of Wyoming. It's aridosols, um, you know, 2% carbon at the most. So it's kind of it's kind of an interesting, you know, topography. But we're, we're not really in the sagebrush step where we are. It's still rolling grasslands. And they start just a little bit over west of us and... Uh, like like 10 miles west, and you're into sagebrush. So you'd say you're on the plains, not in the sage. That's right. That's right. But we, I started in the, I started in the sage and moved to the plains. So <laughs> That's probably the better move, I think. <laughs> and we still operate some stuff out, out on that land and stuff, and it all has its advantages and disadvantages. So, so we, we can kind of circle back in a little bit and talk about how you got your start because that's you know, really one of the things we want to talk about. Uh, tell us what you got going on now up there in, in Lusk. Perfect. Uh, Brian, we have three units is the way we're structured. We have one company. We're headquartered out of Guernsey, Wyoming, and my wife and I are the owners of the LLC. Uh, we are basically an operating company that also invests in, in animals at times. Um, our main modus operandi is custom grazing animals for others, and we just end up our own client at times. The ranch, the units are... One there at Lusk, Wyoming, which happens to be where we live. Then we have a unit in Atkinson, Nebraska, which is five hours east. It's across the 100th Meridian, clear over on the other side of the state. And uh, it's totally um, self-functional. 
um, and everything, all the people and staff, they don't come to Wyoming and we don't go out there much. Um, and then we have a third unit in Southern Wyoming and it's located near Guernsey and it's, it's what I would call our, our fractured unit. It's made of several ranches that are all just managed together. And that's getting into the part of the state where they do a lot of seasonality in ranching. Um, obviously we're a climate of extremes and historically many people would have trailed their cattle to summer pasture and then brought them down to winter pasture over the years. Um, the last hundred years, that land has been fractured in ownership. So they're no longer contiguous. They don't trail to that mountain. So the mountain guy, he might own a ranch over here or not own one at all. So, so that particular unit, um, we have a lot of summer country at Medicine Bow and then south of Douglas, Wyoming. And then we have the winter place, which is there near Guernsey. And that happens to be where my wife and I purchased the, the, our first little startup piece of property. So, and I have an office there. I actually drive 45 minutes to the office, um, when I'm working out of the office every day. So, Oh, wow. So we have 13 employees right now in the winter and uh, closer to 15 to 16 in the summertime. And, uh, yeah, and we're, we're doing all the things that come with that. <laughs> so, so you've got these three different operations, nexuses, and it sounds like you've got multiple properties that are kind of attached to each operations center. Um, what kind of, what kind of livestock are we looking at? What kind of livestock enterprises are we doing? That's right. We do cow, calf and stalker. Um, and then we have hair sheep. Um, we have custom grazed wool sheep also. So I would, I would say on each ranch, on each unit, we have a small room in it and a large room in it. And that's really how my mind thinks, um, enterprise. And then we change classes based on, uh, you know, kind of the willing customer and the, the matching the animal to the resource. We're really focused on that. We've went all in on stalkers, for example, and we've discerned that, uh, we need to be closer to like a 60, 40 ratio on this ranch, you know, with cow calf to stalker, um, to really do well for clients. And we need to be over here, maybe 90, 10, you know, and, and it's different on each ranch. We're never going to get it right, Brian. Um, we're changing every year that, and we actually made that our purpose this year. We said, um, like in a nutshell, uh, what we told people of like answering the question, why are we here? We're embracing change and we're creating culture. And, and that's what we kind of wrapped up. And, and we're not sure that that's, that's the completion of our purpose, but it kind of, I think, lends itself to uh, an air where anybody who's on the ranch probably feels the energy that we're doing things differently. If, if nothing else, we're doing it differently. <laughs> I can't say that it's right. <laughs> so, Well, if, if anybody's listened to more than about half of one of my episodes of this podcast were all about doing stuff differently. So what are some of the things you're doing differently that that's really making you stand out in these communities from your neighbors? Perfect. Um, yeah, we're very focused on the grazing. Um, we're very focused on stockmanship, uh, Bud Williams's triangle, you know, and, and management of money. The grazing management intensive grazing is not done in our area. Um, almost exclusive to, it's not done at all, Brian. Um, and part of that is that they are on really good ranch land there at Lusk. It's perhaps some of the best land in the state of Wyoming, and they didn't have to. That's me, me extrapolating, but I think that people in tougher extremes reach out for new things more, and uh, they have a good piece of country in that in that part of the world. So, yeah, we're moving animals as frequently as twice a day on range um, at densities of five to 15,000 pounds. I'd love to hit 30,000 consistently. We rarely get there. Um, we'd like to be there. Um, we try Winter to do forage that. support. 
that that high of stock rate? It would. It would there at Lusk. You know, we we're putting out, you know, uh on in twenty nineteen upwards of two thousand pounds per acre of wow. forage production. So it's pretty incredible. On a, and it's a fifteen to seventeen inch pre zip zone. So so you're not that far off down no, here. You're, you're really not. I mean, I think we get like twenty to twenty two yes, is sir. about what we get here. So yeah, that's that's not far off. Two thousand pounds an acre of harvest harvestable forage is I think you're doing something right. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. We have on the ranch that we've managed holistically for six years, um, it's a sandy loam soil, and I believe it was bison heaven back in the day. And it is, uh, when we got there, they would summer 360 head of heifers, and they would run them for about 10 months there. And we've been summering for five months on the neighborhood of 1,300 steers. And so, and when you look at forage production, um, obviously there's different weights and things, but to put it in a nutshell, it's been averaging uh, about 2.5 times the amount of the stock, de- the stocking rate of the neighbors, much higher density, but the, the stocking rate is my metric of success, so to speak for grazing. So we're focused on grazing. And then we also add a small ruminant enterprise on each of the units, as I was saying. So we have a herd that are open range herded. Um, it could be sheep, could be goats right now. We're pretty into hair sheep. Um, um, and our, we have two, two bands of hair sheep and they're pretty much dorper influenced and, uh, they seem to be able to handle the cold weather and the hardiness. So okay. that's what we're doing. So you mentioned open range herding, open yes. range herded. So let, is that, uh, is that like Bob Kenford style instinct of migration grazing? Is that more like Glenn Elzinga style in herding or what are we talking about here? Sure. It's probably... It's probably the pastoral progenitor of those other two ideas. So I would say that it came first. <laughs> I think people all over the world have been pastoralists. Well, and, well herding herding livestock, herding livestock is. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a that's a thing that only really kind of went away in the last fifty to seventy years. I mean, it's still practiced in a lot of parts of Africa that have never really had a lot of colonial influence or or influence of a lot of modern agriculture and and science-based thinking they're still out there with their cows every day herding them around to fresh grass doing everything alan savory (laughs) says to do but they don't even speak english much less can say holistic management yeah 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 and and we really noticed that i mean have you studied fred provinja much fred provinza yeah i I read a lot of fred yeah uh, microbiome his book on uh, the art and science of shepherding i really recommend that and it was really neat. It was a conversation between a French sheep herder and a Sicilian goat herder. And it encapsulated a lot of the nuances of herding. And basically he was the, it's part of the summation of Fred's work. Like his, uh, his, his whole life's body of work, um, was really wrapped up in his latest book. But, but that book was those guys noticing the nuances of what they were doing while they were herding. So our herders live out there in a camp, they're in a camper, um, the modern day sheep wagons, a camper sheep wagons have become a novelty item that now are $10,000 for an old thing with a hole in the roof. So we don't use sheep wagons. I would love to, I don't own one. Someday I'll have enough money that I'll invest in a sheep wagon for, for our front yard. So. Sheep wagons are sheep wagons are the cheap disposable camper of the two thousands. Well, yeah. Or, or the, the, the cheap versa. Yeah. yeah. The, the cheap disposable camper of the two thousands is the modern sheep, the wagon. modern, modern day sheep wagon. So yeah, but our guys live out there. They, uh, they bunk. 
they get up in the morning, basically. They let the sheep out of the bed ground. There's important parts of all of this um, that we could talk about. But then they watch the sheep on a designated unit of land. And and we try to keep them in a certain area so they kind of fit our grazing plan and what we give them as a model. And they are supposed to keep the sheep not only healthy and keep them, you know, if there's any sickness or anything like that, keep abreast of that. But more than anything, I believe that herding gives you the ability to be more flexible than any other type of grazing. And it's very well done with sheep. Um, you know, one example would be sheep fit low water environments. So if we've got a pasture with bad water that the cattle don't utilize as well, we just use it for sheep more. And that's exactly what the old timers did, you know. And then the other thing is during the wintertime, they don't hardly come in for water at all. They can subsist on snow. So in the wintertime, if we have, you know, desert range, we've we've ranged out as far as three or four miles from an actual water source and completely subsisted way out there. With sheep. With sheep. Four miles. Four miles from water, and they didn't die. Yep. Oh, they 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 thrived. Now, they aren't thrived. aren't sheep just walking around looking for a place to die? <laughs> like, well, isn't that true? Question. You know, it's it's uh, it's not true. It is true that that veterinary school teaches as a very well known thing that they actually talk. They say sick sheep are seldom saved, and that part's true. Once they get compromised, sheep can die pretty quickly. But the sheep itself is. You know, you got to remember their forebears are our Rocky Mountain bighorns, and they're pretty tough, and they're okay. pretty hardy. And there's like 70 species of those all over the world, and they all live where no person wants to live, and they're they're good animals. So That's a fair point. <laughs> That's a fair point. And I guess when you think about one of the most difficult animals to hunt in North America, it'd have to be the bighorn sheep. Yeah, yeah. Because the, they, can, they do go where everybody else wants to go. Like when the elk quit and the deer quit, you know, they keep climbing. That's and, right. Yeah, and our hair sheep are even, they're, they're kind of new um, to the United States scene, but they're one of the older varieties of sheep. The Dorper specifically is a Dorset, which is an improved breed, you know, from the England, right. you know, one of the England Isles. But it was bred to the Persian, and they are a fat rump sheep. And basically, all of the Middle East has these, these other sheep that don't have wool. And that's, the, that's what made all these hair sheep. They all came from those kind of sheep. Well, that's what all the sheep were 10,000 years ago and now they've been bred to have wool but to their detriment they've lost some maternal traits they've lost some things we really believe in the in the hair sheep for being a little better at staying alive so that said i've sure killed plenty of hair sheep and it's all <laughs> been due to my mismanagement so <laughs> I've, I've had a few die because i don't know what i'm doing too but i think Every year, we just have to do, do a little bit better and learn a little bit better and, and right. share these failures and crashes that we've had. That's right. Yep. So, we were talking earlier. Now, you know, as we're recording this podcast, Sage and I have literally been hanging out all day, like since since this morning, and we're doing this kind of late in the evening. Uh, Sage, earlier you tell me tell me how old you are. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about Sage the man. Where did you come from? And how did you end up where you are, like, like the last, I guess, 15 years? And what made you, what has put you on this path to be a land manager and, and a CEO of up to 15 employees and three different livestock operations? Sure. Um, what a question. Where to start? I don't need to get too wordy, but there's some interesting things. <laughs> so I grew up near Douglas, Wyoming. And my grandfather has a ranch. 
And I always loved going to the ranch, but we didn't grow up on the ranch. We moved back there when I was eight um, to be sort of near. Now, near in Wyoming, we say near, it's a relative thing. To, uh, some parts of the country wouldn't understand our near. Our near is within a couple hours, you know. <laughs> and so, and that's a lot of rural America. <laughs> I, I've been through Wyoming. That's fair. Yep. That's fair. <laughs> so, so it's not like we lived on the ranch. Um, my dad did work on ranches. He was a professional, you know, cowboy, basically. And he'd end up kind of a foreman or a lead man a lot on different ranches. And so we moved a lot when I was really young. And then he kind of settled in at a feedlot. And then, uh, anyway, they're south of Douglas. They bought a little piece of property that was actually my great-grandparents' homestead. So that piece of property, of course, it would have been homesteaded in the early 1900s, not nearly the history of your family, but it has never been out of the family. It's just, we've only have 72 acres left of it, but that's that's what we have. So I grew up there, um, basically 4-H and FFA. I, I was not on a ranch. It was always a bit glorified for me. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And being around a rural town, which still did a lot of community functions and the communities functioned fairly well where they got together for you know poker games and things so I got to go to lots of brandings and things like that and start to get involved you know so I I learned a lot of people worked on ranches and uh, I guess I wanted to be two things in my life first was a county extension agent and I have no idea where that came from it lasted a couple years and then I wanted to be a rancher and and my grandpa's always been kind of a hero of mine both of my grandpas were ranchers and uh, I went the rancher route and, and that's, that's what I wanted to do. So that's where, that's where I started. I just always had that as a dream. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to imagine you as an extension agent. <laughs> I, 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 I just can't get there. I'm glad you're on the path you're on because it has made our paths cross. <laughs> so where did, the what's your, what's your background like after high school? What'd you do when you graduated high school? You bet. I was actively involved with uh, range judging. It's kind of a cool thing we did in the 4-H program in Wyoming. And that led to me getting a degree in rangeland ecology and watershed management at the University of Wyoming. And when I was there, I came into high school, or I, I, in high school, they had a lot of AP type classes and stuff where you could get college credit. I mean, there were college cre- classes through the local community college. And so I took quite a few of those. So I went to college with 40 some credit hours. So I I could have exited in about two years, but socially I wasn't ready for that. (laughs) And so I wanted to kind of extend my college career. And so I signed up for several minor degrees, basically, Brian. And so I ended up getting, I don't, not sure I could say them all and they really don't, they're pretty irrelevant, but basically related to range. um, I did a lot of other minor things where they were interesting. So, but the whole time I was pretty focused like a laser on being a rancher. So I just took anything that was cool and then, like I was like, I need to learn about trees and I need to learn about soil and I need to learn about all this stuff. And then, and then pretty quick, I was like, oh, I'm only like two classes away from another degree. And so I just like, oh, I guess I'll take those ones and we'll just fill it in so that I have the paper to go with it. So all that stuff's irrelevant, but, but, uh, that's, that was the course. I was five years at the university of Wyoming, um, but did not have any sort of advanced degree. So I'm five, pretty- <laughs> five years to do three, four year degrees. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so how did, how did a kid with a bunch of student debt and not a family history of ranching get into ranching? <laughs> well, I, there's a quick story. I signed up for a program. We don't have to tell quick stories. We have all 
day. We have the rest of the day. Nebraska does a program called the 100 Cal program. It's pretty neat. It's for young kids. They go to a technical college down at Curtis, and they get 100 cows. When they leave, it's like a two-year deal, and they leave college with 100 cows and like a lease. And, or that was the idea. Phenomenal. Wyoming tried to model it, and they called it the Wagon Program, Wyoming Ag Ownership Network. And it was it was an epic flop. However, I I applied, and I was lined up with, uh, with a rancher over by Lusk. And so out of college, I thought I was going to go into, like, taking over this ranch. That's what I wanted. I remember sitting around with my friends, like, on graduation day, like, showing them maps. Nobody cared. I was the only <laughs> one that <laughs> – I mean, they were happy for me. But, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, so went over there. Fantastic people. Wonderful Christian people I'm still very close to, and they've been mentors to me. But about two months in, I realized – they thought of me as their hired hand. They thought this was like a hired hand service. And I was coming at it from a different angle. So that put us on different wavelengths. After right. a couple months, we aligned and knew where we were, you know. But, you know, at the end of a year, almost a year there, um, I, not even a year. Here's what happened, Brian. I spent all, su- his granddaughter died in a tragic accident. And uh, I spent all summer there by myself running the ranch. And it was a 300 cow deal where he put up some hay on three pivots I ended up behind a tractor for the first time in my life. And I got a great education in what I didn't want to do. I had to put up all that hay and I put up 1500 tons of hay, you know, I would say largely by myself and I was very bad at it. And, uh, my focus was off. I, I, I did not, I'm not a good farmer. I'm not detail oriented or meticulous, all these things that you look for in a good or precise. And <laughs> needless to say, neither of us was impressed with my farming skills. And so <laughs> I, I, uh, um, at the end, you know, we got through the summer and I was pretty burnt out there and I could tell that I was going to have to put up all that hay the next year. And so I started looking for different things. So I placed an ad Wyoming in our small state. We have, uh, uh, one ag newspaper, basically. It's called the Wyoming ag- Livestock Roundup. And I placed an ad in the roundup and it said something to the effect of, do you want to lease your ranch out to a young, hardworking person? Um, you know, and, and I might've said, you know, I will take care of your land and I will take care of you. Please call me. <laughs> and and believe it or not, I got, I got some responses. Um, one of the responses was a gentleman at Medicine Bow, Wyoming, and he leased out his ranch every year. Uh, for, for a lot of different reasons, but, um, he, you know, he, uh, anyway, he's been on this custom grazing thing and, and he was telling me about some of that. I went and looked at this ranch and I was going to lease the ranch. It wasn't like, it wasn't like I had an option (laughs) in my mind. I went over there and, and he basically showed us a ranch that had been through the horrible drought of 2012. Um, this was in 2013 and I was looking at it in January and it was just dirt (laughs) and, and I, and there was nothing about me that was going to not lease that ranch, no matter what. And so um, I went home about Christmas. Uh, couldn't bring myself, you know, it, it, it really bothers me to, I, I need to have tough conversations with people early or that I can't sleep well. And so I, I talked to my employer and I said, look, I'm, I think I'm going to go do this. You know, would you, would you be in support? And they actually tried to get me to stick around. They offered me the ability to keep five heifer calves the following year. And, and that was a big deal to them. And so I'm not trying to denigrate that, but for me, where I was at in my life, I was ambitious and young and dumb and stupid and single and none of that, it, it didn't matter. So I just was like, no, I, I can go, I'm going to go there. <laughs> and so I went over there. And so my first ranching initiation 
was the summer of 2013, which was a seasonal drought, the second of two years in a terrible drought in that area. And we received maybe 30% of normal precip. And we took in 2,000 steers on 30,000 acres. And before we even got into the lease, um, in fact, no cattle had unloaded, but I contracted all the cattle. The... Uh, the gentleman came up to me and said, oh, by the way, part of that ranch, I didn't tell you, I actually leased it from another neighbor and I lost that lease. <laughs> and this happened what? right, but this, uh, this was eight days to the day before my cattle were supposed to show up and I had to call the owner. <laughs> so since then I've had a chain reaction of that sort of conversations and things that have happened. And sometimes I think I have the luck of the Irish, <laughs> but, but, uh, I've learned so much. And so it's been an incredible road, um, to where we are today. So, so that was 2013. So you said, right. Eight yep. years ago. Yep. Yeah. 2013 was, uh, around here. 2013 wasn't that bad. Didn't have a lot of early rain, but it, uh, it rained late and it did the same thing in 2014 and 2015. Like we thought 2014 down here was, was going to be a pretty decent year. It started off. Okay. But then it got dry. Bunch of people destocked, and then it really rained and it did like the same thing in 2015. So like, and that led up to 2016 where we had a lot, and I mean a lot of stockpiled forage, but the 2016, that's a story for another time. Um, so, so we're back in 2013 and you've got this first place down at Lusk. So this is at Medicine Bow. At Medicine Bow. Okay. What was, what, how bad of a wreck did that turn out to be? You know, it was, um. We had basically cowboy skills because at the latter end of college, that's what I was kind of doing, running around, riding a horse, working for people, learning how to rope, how to ride, do some of those things. And I remember a distinct fork in the path where I was like, I could go be a cowboy and I think I would have had a great quality of life for a little while. Or I can go do this dream of having a ranch and I could tell it was going to be hard. <laughs> and, and, and so, so yeah, the, the, it was a wreck, Brian. I'd contracted, I think, 2,500 cattle, and I ended up scrounging. The good Lord's grace found us ranch leases in the vicinity, two more pastures. Um, and we lost, we basically lost 11,000 acres in that conversation. And shortly thereafter, I'd picked up another 8,800 acres. And, and I can't tell you where that came from other than the good Lord's grace because it just materialized. And, and it was an unused piece of property that was just as convenient and close to town and where I was living. And so, but as far as a wreck, that summer was a, I think everybody in their life has these, these, uh, building summers that just make you into who you are. That was, that was the defining like moment for, for me. And I think for Hadley, Hadley Hill came and worked for us that summer, um, it worked for me, and he was basically he was my college buddy. I was gonna and say Hadley's pretty been pretty much been with you ever since, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. He did a stand at Turner's, um, where he learned a lot of valuable management experience on some bison ranches. Um, so he came and worked for me that summer, and uh, and then later we were blessed to have him come back. So, um, but but yeah, no, we had one at one point that summer, Brian. We were riding about sixty miles a day a horseback because our horse trailer had broken down in town. I didn't really have the money to take it anywhere big. So we took it to the local mechanic in town and it was taking him, it took him a better part of six weeks to fix this horse trailer. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, it was one of those deals where we were going to get cattle back off a neighbor at 3 a.m. in the morning <laughs> and uh, we heard a loud clunk 
and we didn't stop and we got to the gate and we're like oh we're short a wheel <laughs> so maybe a few other parts too <laughs> so from that point for for about four weeks i was very stubborn i wouldn't borrow one from anybody and uh we actually rode from our house out and it was a common day for us to saddle up in the dark in in our long summer hours even and uh, head out and we wouldn't see each other i'd go to one ranch he'd go to another both of us would be doing projects and and uh, the only reason I know we were riding 60 hours a day is that partway through the summer, somebody uh, who had a local landholding observed that we were riding this much. And they said, you should take a pedometer along and see how far you ride, you know. <laughs> and that's about what we were putting in, you know. It was some long, incredibly long days. So. 60 miles a day on a horse. Like, yeah. when I do 60 miles a day in my gator, I've had a long day and that's in my gator with the padded seat and suspension and a windshield. I couldn't imagine doing 60 miles a day for four, five, six weeks straight on a horse on the plains of Wyoming. <laughs> I'm glad there's young men in the world like you that are willing to do that. I would have gone and borrowed some money. and got the trailer fixed. I mean, <laughs> I wasn't that smart, Brian. <laughs> I was stubborn is what it is. <laughs> you know, we, we, we ended up, you know, working through it and everything went good. The end of the summer, we actually had to ship about a month early. And uh, the net result, I paid Hadley too well. He knows that now. So it's just a funny point now. I basically wanted to hire my best friend and make him sure he was my best friend. And so I wasn't going to mistreat him. I And I just worked for cowboy wages, so I wasn't going to pay him any of those dang cowboy wages. So I paid him too well. I didn't exit the summer with much. <laughs> I think I had purchased an extra horse trailer by the end of the summer to make up for my fallacy. What we did it but the, the, the knowledge and experience was priceless, absolutely priceless. So we placed cattle. We were big into Bud Williams. Hadley grew up with Bud at the Maddox Ranch in eastern or in western Nebraska. So firsthand. Firsthand. He's actually worked with Bud at least, you know, a dozen times in his life or something. And worked cattle with Bud and got, got all this education. So, so Hadley was like the man. So we were we were taking cattle out like you'd mentioned the Glen Elzinga and that that's we, I didn't know of Glen at that time we were basically doing that that's how we we and in fact at one point there we did a stint where we were camping up with the cattle and holding them on range and that ranch had not been utilized that well um, that evenly so it was very dry but due to our skills. And, and stubbornness, <laughs> we were able to take cattle and place them on, on range and make them happy up there. And, you know, even a couple miles from water where they would go to water and come back. And, and uh, that saved us. That saved our whole summer. So we were able to get through the summer with, with m most of the cattle. We didn't have much of like a death loss or anything like that. Maybe, maybe a 1% death loss or something, which is pretty acceptable on yearlings. And so the model, I should talk about that a little I don't know where I got the idea other than from Alan Nation. And he wrote a bit about the model and Greg Judy of, you know, custom grazing on rented land, right? And right. So, so basically I had this land. I did go to the bank and try to borrow all the money <laughs> to buy 2,500 head of steers. How'd that uh, go? <laughs> it didn't go well. My banker, <laughs> that banker is probably, probably still, you know, not, he still doesn't know what to think of me, <laughs> but he was like, I don't think we're going to do this basically. <laughs> didn't even ask for <laughs> anything. Didn't, didn't what even, he, what he like, did do mm. as, as kind of a, as kind of my, uh, my, my, my consolation prize was he lent me, I had a pickup and trailer bought and paid for it. Well, a pickup and a, uh, uh, a Yamaha Rhino, 
And he lent me $17,000 against my pickup and my rhino. So I had a little running money, <laughs> a little line of credit. So that's what we started on. <laughs> so, yep. Wow. And so you started from pretty much near nothing. And now you've got three different operations of 15 employees. So, and I'm not sure how to turn this back around to where we can start, like, take it back to a place where, well, I guess let's just do it. Like, what? Let's talk about some practical lessons that you've learned in in your journey of business. And so let's say, um, I think earlier you said you're you're in your early 30s, right? Yes, sir. So let's just say there's an analog to Sage Askin out there in the world that's listening to this podcast right now. And they want to be where you're at doing what you're doing. They want to be back out on the land with livestock. What, what would you have to say to a person that, that would come to you and say, Sage, I want to do what you're doing? That's great. I would say this. It's possible first, and there is absolute hope and absolute opportunity out there. It's not under the same pretenses as you think it might be. Your high school ag class, conventional agriculture, um, the, the traditional cow-calf ranch, that's what I thought I would have, Brian. I mean, growing up, I saw Grandpa's ranch, which was a bought and paid for ranch that had bought and paid for cattle. And I thought that's what I wanted. And that's not where we're at today. But the social aspect, the, the, the benefits that come from living in the, you know, the rural lifestyle and the freedom and the independence. You don't have have to tell me. (laughs) We have that, you know, that's, that's the best thing. And so, so I would say to people, basically the path, the end goal might be better and the opportunities are endless, but the path is going to be wildly different, wildly divergent. So some very practical things. Um, the model is basically to run somebody else's animals. So first of all is locating the land and we could have a conversation about that. You know, things. Let, that, let's have it. We've got, we got all day, buddy. That's great. The, <laughs> so locating land is. Cause that, that's the first thing you have to that's have. That's the right? first thing you have to have. After you have the desire. Yep. Yep. You have to have a place to do it. You have to have a place to do it. I mean, and you might even argue that you got to have the place to do it before you really start need to acquire all the knowledge you need. Exactly. Because the knowledge you need is going to depend on the place you find. That's right. That's right. So So be where you want to be. Starts with the land. Starts with the land. I would say a couple things about land. You can't be picky. I, in large part, was able to lease a ranch at Medicine Bow is because hardly anybody else wanted it. (laughs) Certainly nobody else was silly enough to pay what I ended up paying for it. But it's like my friend Hobbs says. Go, you're not going to get the best piece of ground your first time asking for it. Go look for the, the, the misused, the abused, the neglected, the stuff that nobody's taken care of that the fence has fallen down. Exactly. And put the work in. Exactly. You know, and then, and then or basically solve a problem for somebody. You know, my problem I solved was nobody else wanted to lease that, and I was willing to pay his price and lease it. And ultimately, we've paid top dollar on everything we've ever leased. So... That's the, that's the thing about land. I, I do talk to a lot of people who ask for advice on how to do it. And I think a lot of them think they're going to have the white picket fence, the green pastures, the nice house, the irrigation. Listen, I pray that you do. Nobody starts at the top. I don't think you start there. You know, you start out by, by doing the stuff that nobody else has want to do. So the land is the undervalued resource in some respect. And so, you know, one thing I see driving across the mid the midsection of this country is CRP land. 
you could create a profitable grazing business just on CRP land alone. If I was in an area where there's, you know, significant CRP, I think I'd do that. They're able to graze that land every three years on all CRP contracts that I'm aware of. And, and uh, so you could create a cr- profitable grazing business by ta- t- t- having two or three different land owners and basically figuring out a method to water and feed cattle on a third of their land per year and rotate. Bada bing, you've got a land business. I mean, and, and that's just one example that I've mentioned to people and it seems to, seems to be novel. But it's, it, I, it's crazy to me that it's not novel because as I drive around, I see so many opportunities out there. You know, well, and We drove by a lot of them on the way up here coming up through square land and farm country through all the fields of yep. corn and cotton and beans and feed and wheat. I mean, there's, there's tons of pivot corners and waterways and, and little pockets that could be grazed with livestock, not just cows, with even small ruminants, yeah. which, which are pose less of a management challenge to haul feed and water to. Exactly. I mean, how much water does a sheep need every day? Let, you know, a gallon. A sheep the, needs a gallon. A cow <laughs> needs like 30. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, when you're talking about going to a property that doesn't already have any sort of water infrastructure, not even a well or a tank, right. and you're going to have to haul water for your livestock, it sure makes more sense to haul, you know, to haul a gallon per head per day 100%. for what they're eating versus 30 gallons of water for a cow per day for what she's eating. Yes, sir. Yeah, and, and I found the advertisement is good. Um, like that ad that we paste, placed in the roundup, that's pretty good. Now the exposure might be different. Now you might not use the, the, the newspaper medium. You might use a social media medium or something, a ranch world ads or something, but there's dozens of ads similar to that, that I've seen now, like on ranch world ads, you have to set yourself apart. You have to say the right things in there. And basically the right things are that you're willing to solve somebody's problem you know, that, and, and, and then you're going to solve somebody's problem and give them money and give them money. But then you're going to go. So if I told you that I wanted to solve your problem on your ranch, I don't know what that's going to be. Many landowners don't know what their problem is. I mean, they, in a way that they can enunciate. So part of the job is being able to develop a relationship with them. When I, so it seems like when we go look at a piece of property, We'll look at about five for every one, you know, one out of every five, maybe, that we actually sit down and go visit. Well, people will call on an ad when I'm advertising, and then a lot of people just aren't quite ready for whatever reason. And so they say, I'm not really ready. One in five will visit, and about one in five of those that we actually do something with, you know. I go prepared to each one that I visit with a portfolio and with kind of who we are, and then... I try to be really responsive. Within 48 hours after going to somebody's property, I make a point out of getting them a detailed portfolio of their property. I will map it and and have learned skills in Google Earth, which once you figure it out, like I'm no techie. It's not that hard. Google Earth's pretty easy. Yeah, yeah. But it blows some people away, you know, when I can present them like a map of their ranch. Some of them have never seen a map of their ranch. I mean, and, 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 uh, and say like, this is the soil types. I've done all this research. This is what the NRCS recommended stocking rate is. This is what you've been stocking. This is what your, you said your granddad stocked, you know, based off of questions and answers that we had. And the net result is that generally we've been able to, to lay something on their table in the form of an offer within 48 hours. And they, and I, then I do the no pressure policy, Brian. I try to, um, I try to just not bug them, just give them time, even to the level of years. 
And I, I what what my my go to line has been, and I think this is very helpful. Um, and I'm totally open about it. Is that think of this like an insurance policy? Basically, if you ever do come on the market or you ever do anything, I would appreciate if you'd think of me. That's all. That's all. And this didn't take that much of my time, and it's worth it. And if one in 25 of those that you go visit strikes, you know, then that's all you need. You just need one. And the first piece of property is the hardest one. And after that, you can start saying, hey, here's some of my results. Here's what I've been doing. And you start to build some credibility, you know. So For sure. And let's revisit that. You know, you said one in five out of one in five. So, you know, aggregate, that's a one in 25. So every 25 people you go talk to, one of those you'll eventually end up with a land deal. And I remember earlier we were talking about success metrics and, you know, the podcast listeners, that was that was the title of the, of the episode that came out the day we're recording this, which would be last week's episode if you're listening to this on a release day. And I think I just confused the hell out of everybody. But the way we measure performance, the metric by which we measure performance, you know, we tend to think in binary terms of winning and or losing because – as we're growing up, we're exposed to all of these sports. And in sports, there is one winner and one loser and only two contestants. I've got news for you. There's 8 billion contestants in this sport that we call life. You're not going to win 50% of the time. Because if you're winning 50% of the time, that means that 50% of the people are losers. And I don't want to think as of 50% of my human beings as losers. We're all winners. But we need to redefine the metrics of success. And the metrics of success, like in the wild, apex predators in the wild may only have a 1 in 10 or a 1 in 20 success rate on a hunt. You know, you take the wolf. You take, uh, we were talking about black-footed ferrets earlier. You take the black-footed ferret. You take the wolf. You take the coyote. You take the black bear, the mountain lion. Yep. I mean, these are top apex predators on this continent. Their success rates aren't better than one in ten, so we need to be we need to be mindful of the metrics of success and what we're using to measure success. And just because we're not winning half the time doesn't mean you're a total failure, and it doesn't mean that you're a loser. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and maybe I, you know, was it Mark Cuban I, and many entrepreneurs? But he has some statement to that regard that you know maybe success is just really persistence. You know, and and. I really feel that way. You know, another way to put it is uh, quantity, you know, just, just, you know, how do you get good at hitting a baseball? Just keep hitting at it until you can hit the baseball. You how know? do you get to Carnegie <laughs> Hall? Practice. Cause I, yeah, like I told you earlier today, there's, there's what, what really hurts me is to have young people. If somebody's out there listening to this and have you give up. You know, don't give up. It'll come. Most of you are way more talented than anything I could ever dream of. And you just, just, if you don't give up, you'll be there and probably quicker. And people like myself and the mentors that I've learned are willing to, you know, learn from like Wally and these people we were talking about earlier today, they can help you avoid some of the stupid stuff that I've done, you know? And if you can avoid a few of those, you're going to go even faster, you know. Plus, and we haven't even really gotten there yet, but, you know, this point in the world and this point in ag, we're at like a crisis pinch point slash whatever you want to call it. Maybe you just call it a generational transfer. We're, we're solidly in a generational transfer of land wealth, and that is opportunity. It's better than what it was when I started eight years ago, and it's only going to get better for the next little while, so... 
I would I I think there's better opportunities at the end of 2021 than there was in 2019. I I think that ever since COVID has set in and society has started to feel the effects of that pandemic and without getting too political, all the changes that governments are trying to ram down our throats and, and everything else that's going on in the world, a lot of people are seeing the value of getting back to nature and getting back to the land and trying to live a much more simple life. And I think that people are starting to see what's going on. Um, and we are seeing a lot a lot of younger people yep. want to get more involved in their food production and want to want to get back out on the land. So what are some other ways that we could we could encourage some younger people to get back into their back into their food production whether they're growing a backyard garden keeping chickens rabbits or whether they're going full sage asking and asking global enterprises spread out across two different states with 15 employees yes i guess the covid pandemic just obviously woke everybody up right like you woke up and there was no milk at the grocery store or no and- toilet paper. <laughs> the toilet paper deal is so solvable. <laughs> I, I know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the, but the milk, that's a big deal. Yeah. Well, it kind of is. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I guess I don't know. The, the, the first thing is I think it's easy in an urban environment to think, to not think about things, right? For for one, we don't think about things in an urban environment, and even less, they're thinking about us, like generally. If everybody's going on with your life, you're thinking about what you're doing at work, you're thinking about going to town, you're thinking about... What do I need to worry about going on in an urban environment? I mean, yeah. maybe it's a little selfless to say, I know what they need to worry about. They right. need to worry about where their food comes from. But, like, what, what's the other side of it? What do we need to worry about what's going on in the city? Like, how much they're polluting, how inefficient they are, how much food that we grow that they throw away, right? how much space, all the crap they throw away, takes up in a landfill that's in our backyard, right. how ugly these wind turbines are that we have to look at to power their stupid electric cars. Right. But think about it from their perspective. You know, they just hear a glimmer of a good idea. One of them might be, hey, let's go vegan because meat is bad. Right. Well, and yeah. so, and, and, but you can't blame the guy or the gal who thinks that if they've never been exposed to it, because it, what do they do? They get on and they Google a couple things and they see some CAFOs. They see some things that like look bad are hard for us to defend. Right. That's, that's hard for us to defend. Or they can find the picture. Like, why do people belong to PETA? There's can, a reason why CAFOs are hard to defend. Yeah. There's a reason that all, there's a reason that. <laughs> You know, abuse of animals is hard to defend because it's wrong, you know? And, <laughs> and so, so, but, but here's the, I think the best way to get people more involved and realize is that they realize what they're missing. And you don't know what you're missing until you experience it and you get that little golden bit. And what has really driven this is during COVID, by my understanding, the, during the pandemic, p- families, many families had nothing else to do. So they just went west right on a tour the that was the largest visitor numbers ever to yellowstone all those people traversed wyoming and they all experienced during that time a level of independence and freedom that they never even knew was there and often the kids didn't know it was there like the grandpa and the dad they're like oh yeah we used to do this all the time but we got caught in this rat race and we can't do it so i think that suddenly they're all realizing like oh 
like if we've got an extra, you know, we've got this fancy house, kids are juniors leaving, you know, so on and so forth. We don't need this fancy house. We can sell out part of this and get a country cabin. So there's opportunity for a young guy who wants to start a ranching business, place your ad on whatever source you're going to choose that reaches the hearts of the people who have invested in these ranch real estate deals out in the country, rather than being the neighbor and this is more common. If you're in Wyoming and somebody buys something from out of state, the common thing is to shrug your arms, fold your arms, and uh, never talk to them because they're that crazy outsider from Colorado. And or they're from, never going to fit in. They're never going to work with another yep. neighbor. They're only going to be here a couple years before they go broke and have to sell out and leave. Yep, yep. And, 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 and instead of that, be the guy who goes and shakes their hand and says, Hey, how can I be a good neighbor to you? How can I be a good person to you? And and if you're the only one that welcomes them, guess who they're going to think of? You know, I, I think it is pretty common that they'll try to ranch for a little bit, but three, four years down the road, they might decide, wow, the business part of this is pretty hard, right, Brian? <laughs> and so guess who they're going to think of? And so we've had good success with solving their problems, saying, hey, you've got a resource. This resource needs managed, right? You have to do something or it can burn or it can, you know, a dozen different things can happen here. Not to mention, we can pay you to do it. Like we will provide a service and pay you. And that's, that's the relationship I think a person should be looking for in a landlord. And I, I think what you said there really encapsulates a lot, encapsulates a lot of it and a lot of other concepts that I've heard. Um, podcast listeners will, will remember Hobbs Magaray. He's he said that multiple times. Like, if you want to go find this piece of land that is that is degraded, not being used, or just lying there doing nothing, go find the owner and instead of making them an extractive proposition saying, I want to lease your land to put cows on and I'll pay you this much, say, this is what I'm going to solve for you. This is how I am going to make your ranch better for you and for the planet. You don't necessarily want to talk about what it's going to do for you. Yeah. You want to talk about what it's going to do for them and what you are going to do for them and their land to benefit them. Because as soon as you start talking about you and making an extractive enterprise, you're going to turn that person off. Yeah, it's basic psychology. You know, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with psychology. The, the whole art of communication is psychology and is basically manipulation. But it's not meant to be manipulative. It's just you can use it for a real benefit. You know, and another thing I think about when talking with landowners is I really try to figure out the heart and soul of why they bought that land. Of, or, or for people that have been there more, more than one generation, why they kept that land. And, and I've tried to develop a skill that within, you know, an hour of conversation, I, I ask enough probing questions that I get to that. For some, it's easier than others. But for, you know, for many, it might be a, 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 the hunting. Or for a lot, it's the view shed. They just want a spot that they can kind of see. And, and so then you, it's very customized to the landlord. We try to focus on that landlord. When we're doing anything on that ranch, we we don't we don't uh, worry about you know what we're doing on the next ranch. It could be across the fence, and if if for example we're very focused on grazing management, and that seems to be pretty good. Like a lot of people are receptive to that. So like if you got one guy that that bought his place because the view shed, you're going to make sure you don't overgraze the crap out of the stuff that he's going to see out of his front yard. Exactly. If you got another guy that bought it because the trout stream in the back forty. 
you're going to make sure you don't screw up the trout stream, but you might overgraze right in front of his house because he's not going to care. Because he doesn't care. Or maybe he wants it cleaned up because, you know, and, 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 you know, and then there's the little bit of pushback. Like once in a while, people will say, well, we need to spray for pigweed. And, and that's easy. Just handle that regeneratively. You can usually have a conversation and say, hey, that's not really in our, here's our, here's our mission, right? Here's our ecological mission. Pigweed we, can have like 22% crew protein right, in it. Right. But here's the cool thing. I could bring my goats over for a week, a year, and I bet you in five years, we'd have your pigweed under control and, and we could do it while paying you. And it's like, oh, well, that's easy. <laughs> we'll just do that, you know, so. I don't know how it works trying to spray anything in Wyoming, but I can tell you how it works here. Whether you're talking about spraying sagebrush, spraying willow trees, or anything else out in the pasture, right? You can spray it once, and you can spend a lot of money per acre, and you can make it go away for a year. For a year. And then it comes back, and then in two years, it comes back worse than it ever was. Yeah. You just make it mad. So it, I've, had, I've had several people ask me, because you know we had the we had the wildfire come through, and one of the things we're seeing after the wildfire is like a lot of plum thickets and sumac, uh, both smooth and aromatic. And I had somebody ask me about six months ago, like, "Hey, isn't there a program you could get into that'll cost share spraying it?" And I wrote back to her. I said, "Yes, there sure are. There are several programs. I'm not sure what they specifically are, but you can go to the NRCS office and ask." And then I went on to say. I would suggest a, a biological control mechanism. I would suggest sheep or goats to come in to try to eat that and convert it into protein rather than hiring an airplane that's going to burn a lot of fuel and spray poison over the whole pasture by air. Yeah. I, I, I'm oversimplifying that, right? I mean, it was, it was a couple pages of text. I really you know, laid out and made a case for biological controls of grazing with, you know, with something like, goats to go in and eat the herbaceous you know yep. invasive brush and her and the end was or you can just hire a plane and spray death over the whole thing and be done with it <laughs> and she responded by saying well that's a lot of new information thank you very much i understand and you know they did not hire a spray plane this summer to come in and spray it yeah they did have a couple bulldozers pull a 280 foot long chain down some canyons and Man, I tell you what, you want to you want to flatten out a canyon of cedar trees. Oh man! You get a couple of D sevens tied together with two hundred eighty foot of aircraft carrier chain, and I mean, when I say aircraft carrier chain, I mean chain. Yeah. Like you can pick up one link. Yep. You can't pick up two. Yep. <laughs> it's yep. it's a big damn chain, and you put a D seven on each end of it, and you just drive down a canyon. Yes, sir. And I tell you what, that chain puts everything on the ground. It might get to a big cottonwood tree, you know, like a 24-inch cottonwood tree, and they'll hang up, but they'll eventually pull that cottonwood over, too. It's yeah. it's an impressive operation. But anyway, they ended up not spraying it. I haven't seen any sheep or goats over there, but at least they didn't spray it. At which, least they didn't. Yep. That's the first step. That's the first step. And, <clears throat> you know, I gosh, sometimes it's difficult to talk about, like, like just the quantities of fur of, – of, of herbicide that's used for things like that, that we don't even, we don't even think that that's harming our ecosystem. And we know it is like, we know it is. We know that's having not just first order effects with the plant that's killing that we can see. It's got second order effects underneath the soil affects the soil microbiome. And it's got third and fourth order effects that 
that we can't even begin to understand yet. Absolutely. You know, I like who said it, um, Brian. It certainly wasn't my original thought. It was C I D E side means to kill. Like that's the Latin suffix to kill. And I I do like sharing that with people. Like we pretty much don't kill. Like we're here to promote life, not to promote death. So we just don't do side. <laughs> However, I'm not opposed to to those things are tools, right? And so if if somebody has something in certain circumstances and they think they want to spray something, like I'm I'm like, hey, a tool. I, there's a lot of tools in my toolbox. I don't use every day, and I might use them once every five years. But when I want to use them, I'll use them. So I think of all these wonderful things that we've come up with, and a lot of them have deleterious effects um, for ag in agriculture, and. These are all amazing tools. I'm not going to discount the technological improvements. I'm not going to discount all that. What I am discounting, and we kind of touched on this earlier today, is people have lost the husbandry. People have lost the stewardship. People have lost, like, the bond. Like, the third level, I don't know what you want to call it. Like, that, that, that bond between people and animals and the land. And, and you can't get that from a textbook. You have to, you're born with it, I think. Or, yeah, you and, can't, and, that can't be taught. Yeah. You, you either have it in you or you don't. And if you have it in you, you have to feed it. That's right. Or it dies. And, and imagine how many poor people, not poor monetarily, I'm saying poor because I feel sorry for them. They never know they have that. And they could have a wonderfully blessed life and they spend their whole life doing something, you know, some job that they don't enjoy. That, that makes me feel bad for them. And I feel so blessed that we have a job that I enjoy almost all the time. That there are day, There's bad days, sure, but I enjoy what we do. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's days where I wish I had an office. <laughs> even, even a cube in a, in a windowless warehouse, there's some days I wish that I could just go to a cube for eight hours and do a job and punch out. And then I wake up and I realize that that would make me go insane after about... 45 minutes and remember <laughs> that I'm far, far better off where I am and appreciate what I have. That being said, you know, yeah, the, there are, there's going to be bad days. I mean, even your guy that works on the, even your buddy that works on the assembly line at Ford, right. he's going to have a bad day. Right. You know, but the difference is we've really got to pay attention to our bad days. Because we can't let our bad days affect anybody else, and we definitely can't let our bad days affect our animals. Sure. Sometimes one of the best things that I've found to do, like if I go out first couple hours of the day, everything gets screwed up, I get in a bad mood, things just aren't going well. Just walk away. Just walk off, take the rest of the day off. Go do something else. Go drive around. Go waste a half a tank of diesel driving around the country and look at other people's cows. But quit doing what you're doing because you've already screwed something up. And chances are, by going harder and staying in that situation, you're just going to make it worse and make more work for yourself tomorrow. Absolutely. That's a big deal. Knowing when to stop. Bud Williams was big on that. And and uh, on on knowing when to kind of quit or what, or when you're not in the right mindset. And, yeah, there's been several times when we've, we've even had major events, Brian, like a uh, whole crew there, and we're going to, like, vaccinate some cattle. And it just isn't going well. And after a little bit, I can feel the frustration coming on. And I've just learned to say, all right, guys, we're not clicking. We're not gelling. We're going we're gonna to leave these locked up. Like we're going to pull the ultimate sin. We're going to leave these locked up and we're going to go away. And, and like an hour later, 
you you kind of go back. Maybe you all split up. You get over your little bit of differences in the personnel or whatever you were, whatever it was. You come back refreshed, rejuvenated, and I've never had that fail. Reshuffle the crew a little yeah. bit, put people in different spots. Yep. Yep, you come back and you start over and and the cattle suddenly work and it's because you suddenly work, you know? And that, yeah, there's so many nuances there that can't be taught. They can't, it's just through experience. You know, every time I go do anything with animals, I'm learning something new. You know, I was enjoying seeing your cattle today and I was seeing some really cool behavior that it's like, oh, that's so cool. I wonder why that one licks that one now. Like what, what's going on there, you know? And so th- there's so many things to learn and, 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 you know, Bud Williams, I really look up to, but one of the clearest things that he said was he was still learning. He, he only considered himself an intermediate stockman. That's pretty cool. I'm, I had a, I don't know if it was an insight or an observation or, or what it is. It, it was, it's something, okay? So we talk about hair coat a lot. We talk about hair coat being an indicator of hormonal balance. What are horns made out of? Keratin. Same yeah, stuff as hair, right? Basically. Okay, yeah. so it's, it's, it's keratin over a bone. So what is horn growth patterns? Like, have you ever noticed the rings right. around a horn? Is that telling us anything? Is that telling us that when that particular piece of horn was growing, was she deficient in something? Did she have a surplus of something? Are are those markings on the horns telling us anything? Like if if it's if it's the same, if it's made up from the same building blocks as hair. Yeah. It's gonna tell us some of it's gonna give us some of the same indicators that the hair is, right? I mean that's logic. Absolutely. Well, that's how uh, I mean it's very well known in a wildlife that you know, oh, that, that club, club horned bull, you know, well, not so much from physical, like they knock a horn and it grows in a different direction, but, but, uh, different years, a bad winter, they have different horn growth, good years. They have good horn growth. I'm sure it's the same with cattle, you know, and animals that don't shed their antlers every year, like cows, I, I'm sure that they get like rings, like a tree, you know, trees are the exact same thing. They, they, uh, you know, good years, they grow more. Bad years, they grow less. Guarantee it happens with horn growth on cows. I don't know much about it, though. Well, I I, I haven't heard anybody else talk about it. Like, I tried to talk to, um, I think I brought it up to Derek Schwanebeck yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Because, you know, he's a Coriana guy. He was like, huh, well, that's interesting. I'll have to start paying attention to that. And, uh, another friend of mine that's been into horn cattle for a while, I brought it up to them, too. And it was pretty much the same reaction, like, Huh, that's an interesting observation. I've never thought about that. I'll have to do some studying on that. So this may be one of those new things that is just sprang into the group consciousness of, you know, our horns, our little growth rings on horns, indicating something about what happened to that animal at that stage of life. And if it is, is there a way that we can read that to get useful information back? Or is it such a thing that, that it takes so long to grow and show itself that by the time we see that, Right. You know, is it already dented past? You know, but then again, a guy could look at that and say, oh, well, now I know how to look at the long-term health of an animal better because I know how to read the horns. Absolutely. And, and you know, we certainly do it in the short term on the hair coat because they're not that quick to shed hair. I mean, it, it's, it's over a little period of time. And that one, you take managerial steps every day, you know, to see that. You start to see it dull. Well, that's past the time when you should have reacted, right? Right. But but it's pretty correctable and so on and so forth. So I think it's, you know, I, I think it's 
that's just part of the thing that we have as management. I don't know how we could use horn growth, but there's something there. I think if a guy, like, you know, if you went and you bought one from the barn and, you know, she had, you know, 18 inches or two feet on either side, I bet a guy could go there and get some kind of an idea by looking at that horn, you know, if she was adequately nourished or inadequately nourished. Sure. I, I, I think that that's like, you know, I think a guy could kind of make a gross estimation over the long span of that cow that's got a big horn. You could make some, you could make some pretty good inferences by, you know, by the growth patterns on the horn, whether she had good nutrition and, and good hormone balance or not. Yeah. Yeah. And that might, that might be all we could ever find out from it. But I think, I think it's worth some study and some thought. <laughs> sure. Sure. These poor, these poor pulled cattle that are everywhere though. What do you do for them? Nothing. <laughs> I don't know, they usually, they had, usually don't have that spectacular hair. A lot of them don't have a very spectacular hair coat to begin with anyway. Grandpa had horned Herefords up until just a few years ago. And, and you know the old statement that if you cut off their horns, their brains run out. You know, <laughs> that's kind of one that I've heard over and over again. That assumes a Hereford had one to begin with. <laughs> if you raise Herefords, I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend you, but um, <laughs> Herefords are Herefords. You know, what I've learned is that cattle behavior is so dependent on their epigenetics. I mean, their, their handling and mainly handling on that animal. And then with respect to generational handling, you know, if you've got a herd that's a little bit ramped up, it's probably been mistreated for a while, you know, and that's pretty common on a lot of big corporate ranches with, with lots of turnover in their employees uh, where people just don't care or don't ever get into it. And they're just trying to get the job done, you know, stuff like that. The uh, you know, I, I I'm excited to see where this epigenetics thing goes because it flies in the face of a lot of the main, you know, the main theories behind evolution and a lot of the main theories behind this stuff in that it allows uh, and and it supports some and it supports acclimatization and and you know where where oh this this effect of this bad winter actually causes this effect in this not just her but her granddaughter you know and that's that you know and i i think it goes into color patterns even and stuff it's crazy and that's what we're going to see in like the animal science in the next 20 years of this epigenetics i'd love to see you have a guest on here who really has some knowledge about that i'd probably be fred maybe fred provenza Oh, we're doing that masterclass with him right now um, that Graham Reese is hosting. And that is, is it tomorrow night? And I'm pretty excited for that. Well, it's an hour a week. Maybe uh, if you have a chance, say something to Fred that I'm going to try to get him on this show eventually. He's, he's somewhere on the guest list, the imaginary guest list that I don't have written down anywhere. He's on it. That's great. <laughs> That's great. He'd be fantastic. So you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, epigenetics and we're kind of dancing around animal science. And, you know, I know I said this last week on the podcast, but animal science did not put it. Animal science, put that pig in the farrowing barn. Animal science, put that chicken in the house. Animal science, put that cow in the CAFO. Animal science is not teaching me how to graze. Right. Like there, you know, that's animal husbandry, not animal science. That's right. So, you know, there is, there's a time, there's a place for science and I don't want to knock science and I don't want to attack science because an attack on science is an attack on Anthony Fauci. 
(laughs) (laughs) I'm not attacking science. I'm just saying that maybe some of these things that we accept and we say, just trust the science, should be viewed with a little more skepticism. And maybe we should start questioning some of these methods that were right, that, that science has, has steered us towards. Well, what is basic? I mean, I'm talking, I don't even know. What's the first science class you took? Third grade, fourth grade? One of the first things you're taught is the scientific method, which is what? There is no answer. Keep questioning. We are keeping questioning, and we will keep trying to disprove our question. That is the scientific method. So for anybody who says trust the science, they don't know much about science (laughs) because all of science is trying to disprove what you just said. (laughs) There's no such thing as settled science. Oh, no. And, And the other thing is, especially with ecology, this is why I find it so interesting, um, and I think I could consider myself an ecologist that that's, that's the way I think of myself. And I like to blend the science that we've learned, which are what they are observations of something at one moment in time. They do not encapsulate the dynamic nature of everything we're dealing with. And that is the interesting part. That means that, you know, as long as I live and as long as you live and as long as our children live, we can continue to learn. That's the fun part. That's why, that's why, you know, there's some settled things in this world, you know, in mathematics and things. And, and there's some things where there is an answer. There's no answer in ecology because there, when we're out there managing a grassland, there are, there are, you know, 30 major variables and 10,000 minor variables all working in these distinct blends to where no two seconds, no two days, no two years are ever the same. Right. I don't know how many times you've thought back like, and I have, even in my short career, I've thought, well, that year is about like that year, except for that and that and that and yeah, and that and that and that and that and that. <laughs> and then you're like, well, never mind. Every year is different. <laughs> and that's the difficulty of managing a complex natural system. Right. Is there's so many variables. And like when you get down to it, there's a fundamental difference between holism and science. Exactly. And the difference is in holism, the way I understand it is you're not trying to control the entire system. You're simply trying to observe the system and make little nudges to direct it and then continue to make observations, monitor, and replan. Okay. Yes, that that's holism. Okay. You're just gently nudging in a direction. Science Science doesn't do that. Well, reductionist science. Reductionist science needs to take away everything that they can't control. Exactly. And everything they can control, they make it controlled variable. Just one at a time. And they run they run series one at a time by only changing one variable. Exactly. And I think you and I and everybody listening to this podcast can agree nature doesn't change one thing at a time. Nope. I had not, a whole e- not on any time scale does she change one thing at a time. I had a whole class called Soil Physics. It was great. I enjoyed it. Uh, Tice Kellner was the name of the instructor, and he barely spoke English. <laughs> he was he was a Scandinavian. He was awesome. He uh, day one, minute one, he said, 
okay, you need to understand everything in this class only works in a vacuum. And then we went on with class. <laughs> and from that point forward, it was very hard to focus in that class because I was like, this is cool math and all that, but I can't apply it because I can apply like a piece of this. Like I understand a little, but this doesn't understand the nuance of a root <laughs> or a rock or or anything else <laughs> and that's science in a nutshell i remember some instructors <laughs> in the navy saying pretty much something almost exactly like that here's the book you need to read it and as soon as we're done with the test you'll never need to know this ever again because it's useless outdated information oh wow yeah <laughs> yeah and but we have to do it because some bureaucrat said we need <laughs> yeah you know it was it was obsolete 10 years ago when they introduced it for a machine that they took out of service 20 years ago. Yeah. 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 No, but there, there is value. The, the most valuable, you know, I, so the one I get caught up on, Brian, is anecdotal. People use that word and like, oh, well, anecdotal doesn't count. And that, when, when hardcore scientists say that, I'm saying that's ridiculous. We All should, data is anecdotal. Everything's anecdotal. And that's the beauty of everything we're doing. I mean, even even every observation ever made that the 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 you know the people that are there looked up to the savants of the scientific world, you know, um, Mendel and and Newton. It's all anecdotal. They just were like, "Huh, I wonder why that is how it is," and they sat down until they could make something that seems to explain it. That's the so science is beautiful. I think the misapplication of science, especially reductionist science, is a travesty. Uh, yes, for sure. And not all science is reductionist. Right. But most science is reductionist. And I think when we're talking about agriculture, right, it's very, very much reductionist because reductionist is trying to reduce or remove all of those variables, not to control them, just to remove them, take them completely off the board. Yeah. And, you know, the, the complex nature of grasslands you know, it's the difference between playing 4D chess and playing checkers with half the pieces. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that being said, it brings up that brings up a good point. You know, we said grasslands. I almost said native range. Sure. So we had a conversation about this earlier, didn't we? Absolutely. About about differentiating native range from this new term I've been kicking around, old growth grasslands. So what what were your thoughts on that? I think it's good. I so I was taught some of the most valuable stuff that I remember in what was called principles of range management, and it was it was taught holistically. Believe it or not, this guy had been to savory and really? stuff and taught us that. And then in our upper level classes, they started kicking that stuff to the curb and saying, "Don't worry about that." You know, <laughs> it doesn't work. Say, it doesn't work yeah, anyway. Yeah. So anyway, he taught a really old school principle where they broke all the the biomes down in the United States and uh, you know into tall grass prairie and into sagebrush step and into all these, there's all these different ecoregions. Who knows what's right or wrong? They've changed them 20 times. But long story short, that's where my mind went. I went to that. that. But the, the key thing that you're talking about is anthropogenic disturbance and, 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 the, and the lack thereof. You know, So undisturbed would be anthropogenic under the soil, literally tillage. And, and that's the big, the big variable as I understand what you're talking about. Right, because you can take a piece of ground and you could farm it. And then you can also take and then you can take that same ground and come back in with native native grasses and native forbs 
and it might take a long time to get that native base reestablished and for it to look native, for it to be indistinguishable from the, the quote, you know, the old growth grassland literally on the other side of the trail that has never been plowed. And for me, that's the difference. Native range you can reestablish yep. because you can go back in and you can plant that. You can plant that on something that has been anthrop... I can't use that word. <laughs> <laughs> Anthropogenic, yeah. It's not very often I meet somebody that has words <laughs> that I can't pronounce and you've thrown out like three of them today. <laughs> so because it hasn't been plowed, it's never been disturbed. That's the old growth grassland. Sure. Yep. That has never been disturbed. And that's what we like. It's super important. We have to protect that because there's so little of it left. Right. You know, and I like where you're going with that. But one of the big things in the conservation movement that I think has been a big fallacy has been the preservationist mindset. And we talked a little about that earlier today. That's the same as sustainability. Preservation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Misused. Misused. It, it's sustainable. Yeah. Like. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? I remember having, like, my dad and I, like, yeah. like 2013, 14, 15, we were, like, sustainable. Everybody, you know, everybody, sustainable was a buzzword then. You know, he'd been kicking around for years, and we were talking about it one day. We are like, well, that's just sustaining the same screwed-up state we're already in. We need yeah. to do something better. And I'm not going to take credit for coining for bringing the term regenerative into agriculture. I might've been one of the first ones to use it. Might've been Russ Conzer. Not real sure. It was, it was a bunch of us kind of like dawned on that same concept of, of shifting the language from sustainable to regenerative right around the same time. Absolutely. And it was a shift that needed to happen because it, it, it it's a fundamental psychological shift. Instead of talking about just keeping stuff the way it is. Yeah. No. No, that's not good enough anymore. We have got to take this from where it's at, the screwed up state that we have brought it to, and we need to start regenerating it and turning back the clock and making it better. Absolutely. And I think the human part in that is huge. I, I am against the preservationist mindset of, oh, this was untouched. We need to lock it up in a preserve and never go there. And and it'll just magically get to be some state. Well, that's fine to a specific state <laughs> and then it gets there and then catastrophe happens like it burns or it or or like yellowstone it you know in the 80s it got overrun with all these prey animals with no predator and then they brought in the wolf thinking that that would handle it and we're not going to go there brian but long story short any land that we have touched which is almost all land on this globe has to be in some way managed. And I believe the preservationist stuff has caused perhaps as much devastation as any sort of ag use. I would say both of them are two sides of a coin and they're equally culpable. You can also lump in some, quote, conservation into oh, yeah. that because not using and not managing a resource does not equal conservation. No. Like, you know, we can't just take these vast million, millions and millions of acre tracks in the Mountain West that had a animal impact, that had natural fire, and say, we're going to put out the fires, but other than that, we're not doing anything, and leave it alone, and think that it's going to be better? Okay, yeah, it's like, going to be bad. <laughs> oh, well, here comes the pine beetle from Asia exactly. to, to dispel everybody of that notion. You know, now we had these huge, beautiful pine forests that we let grow up because they look so pretty. Guess what? They now they're all dead, and now they're all burned. <laughs> now what are we going to do? Now we've got a huge problem. Exactly. You know, 
and I don't want to discount like uh, the one that comes to mind, like the brown spotted owl. Like sure. we got to quit cutting the forest because brown spotted owl habitat. Sure, great. Let's figure let's figure this out. Like it doesn't make any sense to just say we're not going to cut this two million acres of wood that we already killed all the beaver out of. We already killed all the large animals out of. We killed this out of. Uh, but because we're worried about this little owl, exactly, we're not ever going to go back in there. Exactly. Well, like, like it's a it's a good example of not learning from our past mistakes. You know, and and so now what are we blessed with? A ton of mistakes, right? Basically, that's what we can look back, and that's the most fundamental use of history. Is like, hey, a whole bunch of screw ups, and now we can try to do a better path. And, and we're not going to do it right. We know that. But but I think it is important. It's a biblical thing. And, and there's some important morality, whether you're a believer or not, that comes out of those words. And and one of that thing is basically they they lumped it together and called it uniformitarian. Well, they called it uh, utilitarianism. And they made it like an autocratic bent to it. They lumped it with fascist and all these different things. It's not like that. Utilitarian just means that you're using the resource, you know, and a big chunk of it to be utilitarian is that your kids are also using the resource and your grandkids. So it is by definition, the way I look at it and biblically regenerative. (laughs) And that's the beauty. That's what I think. I think all land we have to manage to some aspect. We see a lot of these Western parks and they are among the most mismanaged landscapes that I go through. I see, I see equal travesty, like I said, in the intensively farmed lands and stuff like that. But all of them, all of them are, could be better, you know, and my places can be better, but those have a long way to go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The, the irony of the government telling anybody how to farm or ranch or manage land when there are over a half a billion acres, like 640 million acres locked up in national parks in the West that are completely and utterly mismanaged and have been for decades. Yeah. And then the same government granted a different, you know, different department, division, branch, whatever, but the same government is going to come out and tell us how to farm or ranch. Yeah. You know, and and it's not the people, it's not the people, it's the policy, it's the bureaucracy. And there's, there's, there's a couple different sides to that. So on, on some level, Maybe we do need to manage lands in the West differently. Absolutely. And maybe our farm policy for here in the Plains that has taken what should be the most beautiful grasslands and prairies on earth and turned them into corn yeah. and cotton and soybeans. Like, we'll never get that back. Yeah. And like the rangelands we have left never. are the fringe. Like the rangelands we have left is the worst of the worst grasslands because the best of the best, it's they farmed. Pl- they plowed it up and it's being farmed right now. Even in Wyoming, they plowed it up. It might have been back in the dirty 30s, but it will never be the same. We have land that we manage that's sod bound next to actual pure native range, and there's just no comparison. And and it might be in the same path. We tend to fence those those contrasts and use them differently. Because they're distinctly different. I'll get, I'll get the animal. There's another deal. Uh, diversity is much higher on native range, and animal contentedness is much higher on diverse ecotypes. And and on any of those others, you know, no, I I'm, I will postulate 300 years from now, it will still the animals on those paddocks on those tame grass or improved will not be 
what they are on the native range right next door. I'm probably not going to be here for 300 years, <laughs> but I don't think I'd bet against you on that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be here for 300 years, and I know I wouldn't bet against you on that. Yeah. But that's that's interesting, and I'm wondering what that is, whether that's a you know a climate, um, a latitude, or, or just a simple soil type thing, why it's like the difference is that striking. Because I mean, we, we went by the difference between, yes. you know, ground that had been tilled and been farmed for probably 50 years and then planted back to grass. We saw what that looked like, and we drove through old growth stuff that has never been disturbed. I mean, I don't care... I don't care how much you want to farm. You're not farming on a 20-degree hill slope. Right, <laughs> I mean, right. Nobody does that. But here, at least, you saw it. it's very, very similar. It's similar. It seems like yours goes back and ours, I just, if I, I had, If I hadn't have told you, right. you might not have known. Uh, probably, yeah, not until I thought about it. Just in passing, probably not. That's the honest-to-goodness truth. You, you can, and, and, you know, I think, are you saying that somebody, and let me rephrase this. Are you saying that somebody could take a cotton farm that we passed and maybe plant it to native range and maybe 30, 40 years from now, it would be pretty sweet? Um, yeah, I probably won't be around for anybody to call me out on it. So I could go ahead and make that claim. Yeah, that's cool. I, I would make that claim that, that, you know, some of the worst ground that we drove, drove through to get here. And for those that are just that, that don't know where Sage and I are, we're in Pratt, Kansas. We had to drive through Pratt County, which is full of irrigation, corn, cotton, soybeans, wheat, and a little bit of feed. And those that's pretty much all that that's if we drove by it in a farm field, that's what it was. Yep. And you know, I'm not a farmer, so I can't sit here and talk about what cotton does to the soil. But I know there's a lot of bare ground underneath. And I know the spray plane has to come to every cotton field a bunch of times. That can't be good. So could a guy take a a poor abused piece of ground that's grown cotton for 10 years? I mean, I remember growing up in school, they talked about that's why the economy in the South collapsed is because they farmed out their cotton. They farmed out their cotton. Hello. Like, we're not doing that here. (laughs) That was my first thought when I saw the cotton. I was like, well, they, they farmed, they farmed out all the fertility. Right. Because now there they, wasn't synthetic fertility. Now, add, now they can just add next year's. Like, right they back. farmed out the fertility out of here in the 30s. Yeah. Like, I would argue they farmed the fertility out of this part of the country 90 years ago and have just managed to keep it creaking along through synthetic fertility. You know, but, but okay, we're, get, we're getting away from it. So, we were talking about trying to reestablish grass. Right. Is it going to take a long time? Yes. How long is it going to take deep-rooted plants to reestablish to break that hard pan, that plow line? That might be a 20-year program. Like, you may go out and throw, you know, throw down your native seed bank with all your C3s and C4s and not see a C4 for 20 years. Right. Because that seed may have germinated, but it can't get its roots down past the hard pan. And what I think the key was kind of there in that southeast part of the ranch that we were talking about and looking at where dad did the Forbes back in the 90s. I think the Forbes were key. I think that I think getting those deep-rooted big Forbes and making sure they had enough rest to grow and that taproot to go down and bust up that pan, that's what helped the grass get down there. So my theory is the grass roots by themselves don't have enough power to break through that plow line, break through that compaction line 
where your soil goes to the bulk density of basically concrete. You need the forbs, you need the weeds to be able to do that. Absolutely. Tap roots are nature's way of doing it. You know, and I, and I think that's why we see stuff, you know, dissolve to shrublands and dissolve. That's kind of, that's nature's way of like, we, 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 so they have they have these different models, right? Well, the sagebrush. You're yeah, asking me about the sagebrush. Yep. It's a model. It goes to that because it can maintain some level of stasis-ish there. It's like we can make sure we don't get any worse. If we shade out this grand, at least they can't beat it up this much worse. I really believe that's with sod-bound plants, you know, and 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 as we try to replicate what what they the the grassland, you know, ungulates that grazed on that land as we try to replicate that. Cause that's really ultimately what we're trying to do with grazing, with advanced grazing management, whatever you want to call it, MIG or whatever. We're just trying to replicate what it was. Now we know it wasn't perfect, but we're just doing the best we can, you know? And, and, uh, that's what shocks it. You know, it's crazy. Like our little sod bound. So you have Buffalo grass and we saw some stuff that looks very similar at home. We have buffalo grass and blue grama and threadleaf sedge all mixed in together. And, and functionally, this time of year when it's all kind of gray and desiccated, it looks very similar. Right. And, and they green up different times of the year and what have you. But that ground loves density. If you, if you get dense on it into the 30,000 pounds or something like that seems to be a key point I've been told by people. And I've, I see some changes right in there when we get that kind of density, um, that excited action, you know, I've started storm. to see really, I've started to see really good change at about 25, 25. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking 30, but those are so close in the, in, that, that, you know, as well as I do, animals are moving to that and away from it during the point of a day. So. And it, it it might just be, you know, your soil just a little bit more clay. Your it's yeah. it's the it's the difference in rainfall. Yeah, you know, Shannon and I, Shannon Sims and I have had deep discussions about some of this, and he would be a great person for you to visit with more. He, you know, studied. you know what the problem with Shannon and Melinda Sims are? <laughs> Every time I'm about ready to invite him to be on a podcast, they're on another one. They're on another one. <laughs> and God, I love Clay Connery. I mean, he does a great job. I just don't want to be derivative. Like I don't want to chase his guests around. He's I, already got the best ones. You're already you're down to the dregs here. With me. Uh, well, you've already been on his. Coffee. You've been, been you haven't been on his show. Uh, no, no. Ah, well, I got one up on him. <laughs> no, no. You're down to the bottom of the bin now. But I, I would. Shannon talked about Alan Savory when he came into their country up there. He came and visited their ranch. They were one of the first holistic practitioners in Wyoming, and he had trouble. With the Mountain West soils, we have some really tight, interesting soils that he had a really hard time conceptualizing. And he changed some of his brittleness scale and changed some of that based on what he learned in the Mountain West. And he never got it right. I'm, I'm not going to say he's done way more good than bad, but I will say that it's difficult to apply some of the things. I think that Shannon would agree he's kind of plateaued out on his grazing for a moment. We've tried some of the Ian Innes stuff, and I can't tell you either way yet is what i'm selling you today let's just say let's just postulate yeah that holistic management is 80 percent correct and applicable for 100 percent of the people did that did that scan with you yeah like it's all there everything's yeah. there because they've simplified that's that's the key to that but 80% of it will apply to everybody. You bet. And it's that other 20%, knowing which of that 20% you don't need to worry about right. and what you do. Right. Well, yeah, the Pareto principle and all that. Yeah. 
I like Pareto. I think I I think I would have really vibed with that guy. Yeah, totally, totally. Eighty like, <laughs> twenty cool, rule. Man. I'll just roll with that. Eighty twenty rule. I'm on board with that. I can handle that. You, you can't say that that's probably not how your your life is because it is for me. Oh yeah. I, I I will do very little actual production and then I do a big surge of production. That's life. <laughs> and yeah. the surge, you look back and you're like, wow, how did I do all that in that short of time? Like procrastination, my middle name, you know, on stuff like that. I've learned to do better. Procrasta planning. There you go. I'm procrasta planning. I'm thinking that whole time. <laughs> yeah, it's not procrastination. It's planning. Just looks like procrastination <laughs> because it, I'm taking my time to make a decision. You know what I will say though? I, I think the key takeaway I have for holistic management and for just grazing as a blanket thing is that so many people can do so much better. And yeah. that's the key. You know, the first thing I think that people pick up is harvest efficiency. They suddenly are using everything they've already got. Like, that's a big deal. For most ranches, I think that can double their stocking rate. And why more people don't do that quicker is crazy to me. It's crazy. It's ludicrous. But it, like, if you say the term and start talking about cattle in terms of forage harvest efficiency in a paddock, yeah, it turns like people, people off. they yeah. just glaze over. Like they'll 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 turn away before you even said the last word to go talk to somebody else about what breed. So I had a guy, based on a different deal, he was going to be a potential client. He's a stalker cattle operator, and he called me last summer or last this last spring in 2021, and he asked. If he wanted to be a client. And then he said towards the end of the conversation, whoa, you don't do any of that intensive grazing stuff, that rotational stuff, do you? And I said, we absolutely do. You know, I, and, and <laughs> all the time, yeah, buddy. <laughs> I said, that's, that's what we're most interested in. And he said, whoa, I guess I just can't touch that. I'm sorry. You know? And so I get it. Right. He probably had a bad experience or knew of somebody who did. And that is bad. Like that's, that tells you you're pretty far out on the curve. When, when, you know, it's starting to get exponential and people haven't started doing it yet. But I would say this, if our margins in ag end up as, as little as they are or less, which it looks like they will going forward, more people will be looking for ways to do it better. The next generation who is having to get into these ranches now and operate under, or let's say you have to rent the land from your dad who owned it, you know, and he had it bought and paid for in a pretty sweet operation, then he needs something to live on. Well, that land suddenly has to create a living for two people. Just that can provide the, the economic uncertainty for many operations where they go under. Just that alone, you know. So what do they have to do? They have to change. You know, Einstein's, you know, keep doing the same thing, you know, and expecting a different result. So they have to do a different thing to get a different result. So I think that what I told him was I said, you know, I'm going to push back on that a little bit and I'll do it out of respect. And I asked him if he wanted to hear what I had to say. And he said, absolutely. And I said, I think in 20 years, if you call me, you'll be asking if I do this and want to pay me more for doing it. I said, I think that there are always some hard times in the front end of something, but this stuff isn't that new, Brian. And, <laughs> and, and pastoralists, we started talking about that in the very beginning of our conversation. They've been doing this for millennia and, and yeah, hurting animals, hurting animals, it's and, nothing new, and nothing new and putting so, animals in pens and feeding them grain. That's new. That's new. That's ruminants, putting ruminants, yeah. putting ruminants, confining ruminants and feeding them grain. That's new. That's only been a thing 
I mean, okay, cows have eaten grain since there's been grain grown. Right. I'm not going to argue about that. But confining cattle and making grain a primary form of their ration, that's only been a, that's that that's not 60 years old. It's just an economic circumstance that existed for a certain blip of time, maybe 20, 30 years, that it was really rational. That's the truth. And, and, <laughs> you know, and now, uh, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go <laughs> off on a rant on how irrational and and nonsensical these programs are and and that because right. I, I, I probably still have at least one, if not two listeners that are like, all the way on that side of com- commodity production, and I don't want to lose them quite yet. So well, we'll hang on to those two. Like we talked about earlier today, you can't ever denigrate anybody for what they're doing today because everybody is only doing the best they know how. And, and I, that includes me. There's going to be things you will look back 20 years from now and say that I was doing was absolutely stupid. And the, I agree. They're there. I don't know what they thing, are today. There's things I was doing two weeks ago. Yeah. I look at it and go, that was absolutely stupid. Why did I ever do that? You know, think about chemo. I was talking to somebody about uh, that. Unfortunately, um, their mom it has cancer and is going in for chemo. And she kind of gave up, you know, the same story. And she's not doing chemo anymore. And I was thinking that through and it just popped into my head. I was like, God. We're going to look back in probably not that long, hopefully not that long, and think that radiating people to, to shrink stuff might have been the craziest thing that humanity <laughs> has ever come up with. You Let's, know? Hold on. We're going to bombard you with radiation and get 98% of the way to kill you, so hopefully we kill this cancer that's living inside yeah. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That one we're going to regret. I think that's a whole different conversation and maybe going back and <laughs> maybe going back and looking at some of these things that are giving us cancer. Like... Well, yeah. while we're here, okay, so ever since the end of World War II, okay, and we can go back to the end of World War II, and we could even maybe go a little bit before that into the Great Depression, because that's kind of where, you know, a lot of our agricultural roots and things that are happening in ag today have their roots all the way back in the 20s and 30s. And the farm programs that that came out of the 20s and 30s just to keep the food moving because obviously that's a huge national priority. It was, and it's, it's been in the news the last 18 months about shortages in stores. You and I, I mean, we sat here, we're part of the beef industry, protein industry as a whole. We don't need to talk about beef imports, beef exports, because I'm pretty sure we're on the same page with that. But the point is, I forgot what the point was. Where was I going? Um, you know, I think you were starting to talk about the way that our we got to where we are today. And you were talking about food policy has driven and Right. So you know, a lot of the food policy and farm policies that we have are driven up out of the thirties. Exactly. And that had so then we get into World War Two, and I would argue that it wasn't the farm policies, it wasn't anything in the New Deal that brought us out of the Great Depression. It was World War II. It was World War Two sure. and all the manufacturing that we had to spool up to sure. win World War Two. And in the process of doing that, you know, you had the German scientists that were on the other side of the war. If you say that word, sometimes they they pull your content from the internet. It's weird. So you have the Germans <laughs> that were on the other side during that war. And those scientists experimenting on human beings. Their research is what has led to things like Roundup, 2,4-D, 2,5-DT. You know, a lot of these modern herbicides, pesticides, and insecticides are direct 
descendants from German weapons research in World War One and World War Two. Okay, so that's how we got these big families of pesticides and herbicides. The fertilizers all came from the nitrates that were used to make ammunition and explosives in World War II. I mean, we spent five years doing nothing but building out industrial capacity to build these weapons of war and produce these chemicals and produce these munitions. And World War II ends when we dropped the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. So at the end of 1945, you're a chemical company that has spent the last four years being a biological agent now is building building <laughs> building bombs as fast as you can and growing and expanding as fast as you can because the government says I will buy every bomb you can build. Now you have this giant factory that makes nitrates. That okay, if you can make explosives, you can make fertilizer. So now the market's flooded with all this synthetic fertility. All the labor went away to war and died and didn't come back. So there was a wave of farm consolidations through the Depression, through the 40s, during the World War II period that nobody talks about. And even after that, there was a lot of farm consolidation in the mid-50s because there are people aging out. The people they thought that they were going to pass it on to went to Europe and died or went to Japan, went to the Pacific and died. Or, or if they didn't die, they changed their life so dramatically that it was not what it was. Like they left the farm, went to war, and they came back, and they were an engineer. And right, you know, it was different. They, they went to go. Live, they went to college on the GI Bill. Exactly. The GI Bill was one of those things that the government put in because we can't have all of these guys just flooding back into the workforce. Suddenly, we need to get some of them to get more educated so they re-enter the workforce slowly. Yeah. So that was that was another thing. So you have this rise of synthetic fertility. You have shortages of labor. You have a lot of excess manufacturing capacity that and ingenuity that all of a sudden gets turned loose to build tractors. Bigger and bigger tractors. Bigger and bigger tillage implements. Right. Put more and more fertilizer on. Right. So that led to grain overproduction into, like, as you get into the late 50s, that all led it to a lot of surplus grain production. We still had the Depression-era programs for price support, so the government was paying for all this right. excess production. Now what do we do with it? Somebody around Hereford, Texas had the bright idea. Well, we feed cows a little bit of grain to get them a little fat for market. What if I just build a big old feedlot? Yep. And, and haul in great. all this and haul in all this grain that's just piling up on the ground everywhere and feed it to cows. Exactly. Well, it I mean they were they were, I think, always feeding corn to cows and stuff like that. But like you say, it became the afterthought and you know, and, and, and it was the fifties. It was the late fifties. And it might, it okay, so maybe it didn't happen then, but in the late 50s, mid-late 50s, there were some guys down in Texas Panhandle that realized, hey, all this corn's really cheap, and if I go to a dry area where it doesn't rain, I don't have to worry about some health issues, and if I can bring in corn from under irrigation pivots or somewhere where it does rain and feed to my cows... I can feed cows here, not worry about them, get sick in the weather. You know, and the other thing is the consistency. Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a, I think we can agree that if we say nothing else about corn fed beef, it's a fairly consistent product. That's not necessarily good. That's why it's popular. But that's why it's popular because you know what you're going to expect. 
You, you know, you get what you expect for the most part. And maybe that maybe that's part of the lie that we've been sold and we've swallowed for oh, long enough now that we don't remember because most of us haven't been born a time when it wasn't that way. I don't remember chickens tasting like anything. They never have. And come to find out, they did. You can get you know heritage well, you, breeds. You have that to raise your amazing. own. You have to raise well, your right. own. Or you can just take a conventional chicken now, and if she doesn't fall over within three years because she grows funny, <laughs> she. She will taste it pretty good, you know, if she's out there grubbing and eating out in the rain, you know, and doing stuff. And and that's the crazy thing is we've made to the detriment, you know, you talk about all the food. There's some really cool stuff that Fred's talked about, about energy concentration and, and millicalories of, of, you know, of all that. And I don't mm-hmm. understand much of it. And I actually missed that one. So I'm not going to regurgitate or attempt to a lot of it. But yeah, the nutrient density, the nutrient density has changed to a less nutrient-dense diet, which leads to most of our things. You know, and, and during this whole deal, they did nothing. Joe Rogan's been big on this. They, they, he said, why weren't we focusing on the immune systems? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why weren't we focusing on good health and working out and, like, doing better for ourselves? I'm guilty of it. You and I had a very fat burger earlier today. It was great. It tasted great. There was a lot of things that were put on it. And I'm going to guess what? I'm going to drive out of here. I'm going to be hungry within a couple hours and I'm going to stop for some snacks so I can keep going. I am very guilty of it and I've got to get a better diet because I know that the times in my life when I'm not on the road like this and I can eat a more wholesome diet, I'm way more fulfilled. I'm more mentally sharp. There's just so many things going on there. And you're probably eating half the volume. And I'm probably eating half the volume and I lose weight. I don't gain it. Yeah. That's the truth. And, and you're right. I don't know as if... I, I, I don't go so far, Brian, as to think that there was a couple people or a, a consortium of master planners who's saying all this. I think this has just kind of changed and become this way. But I think oh, we no, no, no. have I, to change it back. I don't, think it's a, I don't think it, there's any conspiracy or collusion going on. Right. I, I, think it's, I think it's way too big for that. Exactly. Nobody's that smart. I think it's just <laughs> like these certain ideas dawn in the public consciousness or... Right or spontaneously just just dawn into the public consciousness in multiple people in multiple areas at once. Maybe maybe not. Maybe I could be reaching there, but you know, I, there are times where, you know, things just seem to happen all at once and you can't find a correlation like why why is this guy in California and this guy in Florida both doing the same thing at the same time? They've never talked, they're not neighbors, but why do they have the same idea? Yeah. So I think that you know, on some level, there are some things that can spring into the into the human consciousness without like us having to hear them or even think about them. That we just we start to understand these things as a group together at some point. Sure. And gosh, I can only hope that we start to understand land management and a better land management ethic. Yeah. As a group, really, really soon. Because if we don't, man, I mean, well, so the one thing is, you see a lot of people practicing holistically and it's easy to look over the fence at some of those people and say well so many of them are very smart and and they're absentee owners and they just say to their managers i want to manage holistically and so that's easy for for the family ranch that's struggling next door to look over the fence and say gosh that guy well they're just doing that because they have all that money you know but but here's the beauty of it that i think needs to be spread more is it's also more economically satisfying. Like, 
you can have your cake and eat it too. You can, you can, you can do all this stuff at once. I mean, and, and, you know, I think the harder part is for people to get used to. I think we've built in deeply conservative rural America, a group of people who don't like people, a huge subset of people who don't like people. I'm one of them. Like, I'm going to be honest about it. I'm not good at people. And, 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 but what that is in a negative realm. I, you're it, saying this like it's a bad thing. I just want to go out and be, <laughs> hang out with my cows and be left alone. And you're saying that like it's a bad thing. Sage. I'm saying it can be, it can be abused. And one of the ways it can be abused is we build these big ranches that are built on, you know, uh, more cows per man and stuff like that. And I don't think that's healthy. I think if we had more nutrient-dense food, if we had all these things working together, we'd actually have more people out there on the land, you know? It's, and that's, Bud Williams was big on saying he wanted more people on these ranches, not less. He did a poor job of explaining why. And I'm not sure I conceptualize all of where his mind was going, but what I do know is that that's got to be the future, you know? And you've had some great guests talking about reinvigorating the ag economy and doing some of this stuff. And, that. and here's another thing to think about. I, I'm an optimist. We talked about that earlier today. I'm a big time optimist. And I remember about where I grew up south of Douglas, we kind of looked back in the history books and there was a Guthrie ranch that had all that. They settled in there about 1875 and they controlled a big, and back in that day, you just controlled from like here to here. Yeah, be like, like, that was my cows. My know? ranch is from that mountain range to that mountain range to that river to that creek. That's right. That's right. And everybody's roundup, you'd get more or less your cattle plus all the ones that mixed in. And then you'd have to go to everybody else's. Anyway, really cool time of the country. Thereafter, it, you know, the homesteading and all this stuff, they fought it for a while. And then they had to resist. And it all got shrunken up into little bitty holdings. But the Homestead Act led to too small of holdings, like for somebody to be economically viable on. It, it would have been different if they would have had different land sizes and, I, and, and watershed-based land, not, right. not, not like squares, you know, right? That right. doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah, right. the, the square-based, size-based, Yeah, when you're here east of, you know, east of the Rockies, east of the Front Range, that works. But as soon as you start getting any verticality, you start you start getting into those mountains. Like, squares don't make sense. And I would even argue to a lot of extent, and I've had this conversation before, like if I was going to redraw the map and put new boundaries on the map, there wouldn't be a straight line on it. Right. Like it'd be ridge tops or watersheds. Things would be managed important. Ridge tops and watersheds. Yeah. You would manage watersheds together. Like, you know, we'd be part of of the Mississippi, the Arkansas sub-basin, and then, you know, you just break that down to, like, the fourth level of sub-basin yeah. of what watershed you're at. And you're like, no, this is me. Yep. I own everything that drains into this creek. And then you just go fence that off. Yep, on your ridge tops, And then and then you kind of know what's going on within there. You know, and, and, and so, but where the hope is that I was going at that is all of it was big, and then it got really, really little, too little. And then it got big again, and it actually got little again, these ranches and stuff, and now they're super big again, like the average land size and, and, and ag operations. And I think the hope is that if we do trust history, is that it's going to go the other direction, and we'll get more little ranches out there. I wouldn't have to lease all the stuff that we lease to do our goals. A, if we made more margin per unit on what we're doing, 
because there's more money to go around and less a uh, big part of that's less middlemen involved with all the stuff. And B, you know, I, I think that if a lot of people were doing similar things and they were grazing more, there would be more ruminants out there and it would bring down the competition a little bit, you know, it would change things. And so, so I think that holding on to the past for so long and then letting it lurch to the new reality causes these things. It's very natural in the human psyche, but I, I would, I would agree with that. You know, I, I just looked over here at the counter and we're 10 minutes short of two hours. Does it seem like we've been here that long? No, does it to you? <laughs> I do this all the time. So I've been, watch, I've been watching the clocks. I've been, I've been, I know where we're at. So we keep going as long as you want to go, but uh, two hours kind of where, where sure. most of the audience seems pretty happy. So I mean, we could, you could take over this last 10 minutes. You go, you ask me whatever you want. Is there something we forgot, something you want to cover, shout out you want to make? We left. What have we left on the table? Because I know we have. So the biggest thing we've left on the table has to do with people. And if we're going to do something... I think we should talk about that. We both suck about people. Hire Alan Crockett. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Hire somebody better. But but the whole point is, Alan, to, to speak of him, his comment of every problem is a people problem. Yes. I, and, and I heard it put this way. We have learned really well how to do, first of all, we learned like the, the grazing and stuff like that. So that's basically animal production. We yes. learn like how to produce something. And that's fun. Like that's where most of us start out at the technician level. Then we ramp it up and we learn about economics and we like actually learn how we were running some animals and now we learn how to make money running the animals. Like, like, okay, there's more to this. That's Dallas coming in and talking about, you know, ranching for profit and teaching that sort of thing. And, (laughs) and then we get to this third level and it's HR, it's human relations. And I've got to be honest, that is by far more challenging than those other levels. And so I've spent the last five months. So we have these employees and they are all wonderful people. I've never hired anybody who's a like, bad person. Like you, you're wanting to talk to me about like, we're having this conversation about people management and I'm struggling to think, what am I going to add here? Cause other than last summer, I'm a one man show Sage. Right. Well, and I don't blame you for that. What I would say is I think everybody has to reach out and figure out what, that determines their scale. It's the amount that they can handle, you know? And to some extent, their longevity of the operation is going to be dictated by their ability to manage another person. And so it was life-changing for us to get our first additional person to where I can't tell anybody, um, I can't emphasize enough that that's a big deal to, to get somebody else in on your team where you can get off for the weekend and they can come and take over and look at it, you know? Um, and but this summer we experienced some high turnover but like i said i had good people so the question is i hired good people why do we have bad results and it's back to me i am the problem and 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 you've got to own that as the ultimate manager of the people and so we've spent a lot of time you know gleaning different stuff i can't say that i have it all figured out what i will say is that i wouldn't be surprised if our road forks one way or another in a couple years i wouldn't be shocked if faith and i settle back and have a family ranch maybe with three or four employees or something and we have a smaller scale deal but it's much more efficient because maybe i figure out i can't manage this many people however when i mentioned that to dallas he said you're copping out 
You're going to have to figure this out. So you better get good at it. And, and, and so he didn't let me get away with it. And so, yeah, we're doing some consultation. So, so the, the part that I wanted to mention about people most is the value of mentorship and the value of a network. And it is, it is, it, it, you can't even put a value on it. And, and that has helped us so much. You just start straying into the, into a network. And suddenly this morning at breakfast in Russell, Kansas, I sat next to a guy whose son is Steve, who helps manage Justin Peeler's ranch in, in Colorado. I'm like, what the heck is this? You know, what are you doing to me? God here? What are you telling me? And it put me in a great mood for today, but, but more, more, more than anything, you know, Asking for help is not in the psyche of conservative rural America. And it goes to every element of our mental stability. Our, our, there's been a lot of mental awareness stuff over this last year, high suicide rates, all this stuff. I've felt it. You felt it. We've all been, a lot of us have been there. I'd say that's, and, a, that's a very correct and, and ob- observant statement. Yeah. And it's going to offense it's going to offend some people and if you're listening to this and you're offended by being called a Christian that's or a, a conservative rural American that's afraid to ask for help, there's a reason you're offended. It's probably because that is you. Well, I'll tell you what, it's me. It's me I'm too. A, <laughs> I'm a conservative rural American, but but we've got to ask for help and we've got to be willing to admit that we don't know. And and you know, you see these ranches fall apart to the next generation. And a big chunk of it is if you get given a deal that's that's kind of put together, it takes a pretty big person to not just hunker down in your turtle shell and stick it out there. And then the third generation comes along, which is me, in our in our experience, and willing to try new things and do some things. And it's pretty easy to just shuffle that to the back burner and say, nope, nope, nope. Now, I say all that with all due respect for anybody who's held together a bundle of assets. That's a big deal in of itself. But I do believe that things are either going up or they're going down. There's no middle. There's no such thing as a plateau. They're, they're, they're gaining or they're losing. And uh, as far as value and equity and land and, and businesses, life or they're dying. And that's really sad. And so I guess I guess I would just kind of wrap up by saying I just appreciate you coming here to you know for for you having me here today and uh, being willing to take me around on your ranch and drive me clear up here to Pratt and you've probably put eighty miles on today probably one hundred and eighty miles on today so it's an easy day it's been a it, fun it, day it, it's it's awesome having you here I love you know I love having friends down being able to show them the ranch and you know just getting some of your feedback and listening to you know, some observations you've made, not just about the land, but about my cattle. Um, you know, I, I'm not real proud of this, but last March was the first time I bought my own cows. I don't always know what I'm looking at. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And it's hard. It's difficult for me to know if somebody is telling me what they think I want to hear because they want to be my friend or somebody that really respects me that is going to tell me, dude, your cows look like shit. You need to do something different. Like, I struggle for that. I really do. And, you know, I always appreciate when I have one of my friends from, you know, one of these networks that we're both a part of, like the school that shall not be named, (laughs) um, and some of the other great ones that are out there. You know, you need to be a part of one of those networks. Some network where you can have access to those kinds of people like you, Sage, that'll come down and we can ride around and we can have a great day. 
But if you're telling me something about my cattle, you're not telling me that because you want to be my friend. You're telling me that because that is what you see. It's just what you see. Yep. Well, I don't know if that's a great place to end or not, but I think that's about where we're going to end it unless you got anything else, buddy. Well, thanks, Brian. It I've is, really enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. It's it, an honor. It has been it is it has been a really really fun day, and I think that this was an awesome way to end the day is to come up here and and cap it off with a great podcast. Well, it's a great studio. So thank you, sir, and yeah. thanks to everybody. I can't name all the people that have helped me. So you've been one of them. Thank you. Yeah, it, I'd probably have to do a podcast of just reading names <laughs> to make sure I got everybody. I might need a page two, but. Uh, I guess we're going to go ahead and sign off with the legendary Sage Askin from Askin Global Land and Livestock. And uh, so we're going to go ahead and sign out here in the Eastus Media Studio in Pratt, Kansas. Perfect. Have a great week, gang. We'll catch you later.